0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. John 2, verses 1 through 11. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we call upon you since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you. We ask that you would enlighten us by your Holy Spirit and the true understanding of your word. Give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we ought and so that, you, that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and teach our neighbor by our good example, rendering to you love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents since it has pleased you graciously to receive us among the number of your servants and children. Lord, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Now, as for the events that we read in the Gospels, this is the first miracle of Jesus. In fact, verse 11 makes it clear. Clear that this indeed was that first miracle. It says, this beginning of his signs, Jesus, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this was the first miracle that Jesus worked. Again, establishing that when Jesus was younger, apart from his extraordinary birth and the godliness he exhibited as a child, he lived an unremarkable life in Nazareth up to this point. Unremarkable, only remarkable in his his perfect godliness, which would have been quite remarkable, right? But unremarkable in that he was not going around um, raising the dead and healing every, but healing all of his brothers and sisters' wounds that they had. No, he was not doing that. He was the, the strange child of Joseph the carpenter. Now things begin to change. Now he's going from obscure son of Joseph to uh, his glory being manifested. And things are going to, I mean the the lid is going to uh, come off. Note that the passage begins on the third day. It probably means this was three days after Jesus called Nathanael. Uh, So we're very close to the time when Jesus was drawing those men to himself that would go about the world uh, preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's choosing his men, and he's manifesting his glory through miracles uh, right off the bat. So the the setting for this first miracle is a wedding in the city of Cana, which we know is in the region of Galilee. This city is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, we're not sure where it was. Uh, it was probably uh, a, within hours of Nazareth or maybe a day's journey from Nazareth. We, we don't know. It appears to be close to Nazareth. That's where Mary would have been living. Um, note this, though. It appears that Nathaniel was connected to Cana. And it may be that Nathaniel, who we, we looked at in chapter 1, was... Uh, He may, be, he may have been the one who invited Jesus and the other disciples to uh, this wedding feast. Um, John 21, the very end of John 21 two speaks of Nathan, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. So he's connected closely to this place. Again, let's not blow by the fact that Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding. Right? That's the first thing we want to come away from this passage with. The first miracle he performed was at a wedding. The liturgy that I use for the solemnization of marriage from Cranmer's original Book of Common Prayer, 1549, um, speaks to this fact and the significance of it. It says, dearly beloved, you remember these words, we are gathered here together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Marriage is an honorable estate instituted by God in the garden in the time of man's innocence before the corruption of sin and signifying unto us the mystical union between Christ and his church. This holy estate, listen to this, Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle in Cana of Galilee and is commended by Saint Paul to be honorable among all men. And so, notice that phrase, this holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle at Cana of Galilee. Um, So that short statement asserts, that short statement from Cranmer's liturgy asserts a number of things about marriage. Uh, God instituted it. He, um, when did he institute it? In the garden prior to the fall, the uh, marriage was instituted. Uh, marriage signifies the union between Christ and his, and his bride, the church. Fourth, marriage was beautified with Jesus' presence and first miracle in Cana. And then finally, the Apostle Paul told us to honor marriage. So Cranmer, at least, thought it was significant that Jesus chose to perform his first miracle at a wedding feast. Right? He could have healed a leper. He could have raised a dead man from the grave. He could have have stilled a storm. All miracles that he would eventually do. But the way he manifested his glory initially was to attend a wedding feast and turn water into wine. That's what he did. And so Jesus' presence and his miraculous action have a primary purpose of manifesting his glory Everything he's going to do is going to be about manifesting his glory. But a second purpose is what Cranmer said. It adorns and beautifies this this institution, marriage. Jesus honored marriage, right? He was no ascetic to renounce, one who would renounce the pleasures of marriage. No, he honored marriage with his presence and he further established the joy of marriage by supplying Good wine that enlightens the eyes of men, right? That makes the heart merry. His presence and the specific miracle he performed affirms the beauty, the goodness, the joy of marriage. And that certainly is an implication of the work he did that day. Uh, Marriage is blessed by God and celibacy should have no exalted place over marriage. Um, as the Roman Catholics and the um, Presbyterian revoicers would have it, okay? Celibacy should have no exalted place over marriage. Marriage is normal. Celibacy is the abnormal, okay? And this is part of Scripture's testimony to that, Okay? It appears that Mary was not only an invited guest of the wedding couple, but may have been some kind of assistant at the wedding, a wedding planner of some kind. Um, That would explain why she knew about the wine running out, and why she um, took it up with Jesus and then takes it up with the servants. Right? It seems that she has some authority to be um, orchestrating the events that are going on here. Many uh, speculate that This may have been a family member of Mary, uh, which makes sense given her involvement in those operations of the day. Now a problem arises at the wedding feast. The wine runs out, right? No more wine. Uh, This may indicate that it was a humble wedding, right? This was not a huge, uh, you know, this was not a wedding of of some rich couple, but um, of some poor couple not the wedding of uh, some rich elite. Uh, weddings during this time were not just a few hours long. They were sometimes a few days long, um, especially when that feast after the, the, uh, the ceremonies was factored in. When the wine ran out, what does Mary do? She makes a statement to Jesus, right? She goes immediately to Jesus, uh, clearly implying that she expected him to do something about this, right? Uh, she said, they have no wine. They have no wine. They have no wine. <laughs> um, did she expect him, though, to perform a miracle? Right? Did she expect him just to be a good friend to the couple and make provision for them, go down to the ABC in Cana? Um, we don't know if she expected a miracle, but she did expect some sort of action from her son, Jesus. And Jesus' response to his mother, Mary, is significant. Do not read the fact that he calls her woman as disrespectful. right? This is the same way Jesus addresses Mary when he's on the cross and he's caring for her. right? Woman, behold your son. And so um but taking this statement that Jesus makes as a whole he is asserting in a sense his independence from her right his time his time for his glory to be manifested has come no longer jesus son of joseph and mary jesus son of man son of god and that's that's what he's getting at by saying what do i have to do with you um he's asserting his independence from her. In the Gospel of Luke, you remember this, we receive only one scene from Jesus' childhood. He was 12 years old. They are made, the, the family was making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. His parents leave town after the feast and realize that Jesus is not with them. They left without him, which if you have a large family, you understand, you've done it too. Um, sorry Thomas Um, his parents leave town Jesus is not with them Where, where was he? he was in the temple he was in the temple teaching and when Mary and Joseph find him he says this why is it that you were looking for me did you not know that I had to be in my father's house I had to be in my father's house in a sense even there even there at 12 years old, he's asserting his independence, right? But remember what scripture says about Jesus right after this same chapter of Luke. Scripture tells us that he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart, right? So even in that passage where it seems like he's asserting his independence, Luke is very careful to say, no, he went home and was a good boy in subjection to his parents. I mean, it's a mind-boggling statement when you think of who Jesus is, the creator, the son of God, the eternal one submitting to Mary and Joseph in this. But that was part of his keeping the law. That was part of his obedience and honoring his, his mother and his father. He was obeying the fifth commandment. Now though, Jesus is coming into his own. Right, both as an adult and as the Son of Man. When Jesus says to his mother, Woman, what to me and you? That's what the Greek is literally here. What to me and you? Um, he's entering into a new phase in completing his father's work. No more obscurity, no more Nazareth, no more oblique works, no more Mary's son. His glory is going to be seen being manifested through the miracles he, he performs. That is all wrapped up in his blunt words, I would say, with his mom. This is a a fasten your seatbelts kind of moment. His subjection to his parents was now over, and his public ministry had begun. There would be much more, uh, you know, much from now until his death that would cause Mary to ponder things in her heart. He also says, though, my hour has not yet come. Again, would, would Mary know what he was talking about when he said that? It appears like they are talking with inside knowledge, right? right? Like, Mom, my hour hasn't, hasn't yet come. Um, and so what is Jesus referring to? What hour, right? Whenever we hear this phrase, we think, well, he's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about the, the, the uh, climax of his work. Um, I don't think so. Ryle says he's referring not to the hour of his death, but to the hour of performing miracles. Right? So he's saying, look, you're, you're asking me to do this. My hour hasn't yet come. In other words, he, he's not about to take requests from his relatives. He's, he's not going to take requests from them. You know, maybe James has already tried to do that with them on a no, number of occasions. You know, maybe, maybe others have tried to do that. Maybe, um, maybe Joseph tried to do that when they worked together. Who knows? But he's not about to take requests from his relatives. Ryle says this, Our Lord did not tell Mary that he would not work a miracle, but he would not. but he would have her know that she must not expect him to do mighty works to please his relatives after the flesh. He would only work a miracle upon this or any other occasion when the fitting season for it, the time appointed in God's counsel, had come, right? Not when Mary says his time is, but when God says his time is. That's when he would perform his miracles. So taking it all together, his statement, Mary does seem to be asking Jesus to perform a miracle so that the wedding couple will not be embarrassed Or perhaps so that Jesus might finally get some glory. She might be jealous for that. Uh, Jesus says to her, though, not so fast. Not so fast. And so we expect that the next element of the history would be Mary walking away and not expecting a miracle. And is that what she gets? No. Is that what we get? No, she says, Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. To the servants, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. She does not beg and insist that her son do this, but she holds out hope that Jesus may take some action here, right? So she insists that the servants prepare to obey him. Now stepping back for a moment, look at those words of Mary. What he says to you, do it. What he says to you, do it. That is the approach that you, if you are a Christian, should have to all the words of Jesus, which is to say all the words of Scripture. That's the approach. If he he says it, do it. Right. If it is written, we should say, I will do it. That's the the faith of the Christian. We, We don't work around verses. We do not dismiss verses because they rub us the wrong way. Right? We do not ignore verses because they require sacrifice or pain. We delight to obey our Heavenly Father. Right? We should delight. If Jesus said it, we should be like, yeah, I'm going to do it. right? I'm going to do that. That's what, children, that's what parents expect of their children. And it lightens our hearts. When we tell you to do something and you say, yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to do that. Oh, it's so infrequent. It's so infrequent because we struggle with sin in our hearts. It's so infrequent for us to, as, as Christians to obey God in that manner. We always grumble and complain in our hearts about obedience. But is Jesus saying it to hurt you? Is Jesus saying it because he just loves to lord over those he's giving eternal life to? Calvin summarizes this statement this way. He says, we are taught generally by these words that if we desire anything from Christ, we will not obtain our wishes unless we depend on him alone look to him, and in short, do whatever he commands. On the other hand, he does not send us to his mother, but rather invites us to himself. He doesn't send, that's a, a little bit of a swipe at the Roman view of Mary, right? But a good statement nonetheless. We expect, we We should desire things from Christ, but not apart from obeying what he commands. Not apart from this, he said it, I'll do it. James, Jesus' brother, said, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So you want to be blessed in what you do? You want to to break away from the, the... the disgust you have with all the things that you have to do when somebody else has commanded them to you? Well, obey God. Do them for the Lord, and you will be blessed, right? Be an effectual doer of the word. So blessing is to be found in looking intently into God's word, intently into God's law, intently into God's commands, and out of fear and love for God, obeying what is written. Is that your your bread and butter? Is that your joy? Is that your joy, looking intently at the law so that you might know what to do, how to do it, how to live before God? Is Is that your joy? Do you want to please your Father in heaven? Or do you decide what you are going to do? Say or think, right? Do you, are you the only one that decides what you're going to do? Um, perhaps you have some other factors, some other authority in mind when you determine what you're going to give yourself to, what you're going to do, apart from the Word of God. Perhaps you decide to do what you're, you're going to do because your wife nags you all the time. I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. She can nag all she wants, but this is what I'm going to do. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. It's just a reactionary sort of, you know, it's a reaction to something very nasty, which is a wife nagging. Um, perhaps you decide to do what you're going to do because it will be respected by worldlings. You want the respect of not just your brothers and sisters in Christ. You want the respect of the world, right? And so you decide that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these certain things that the world respects. I'm going to root for these teams. I'm going to drink this kind of scotch. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself to this kind of investment. I'm going to, these are the things I'm going to do, and I'm going to put significant en- energy into those things. Um, because you want to impress people. Perhaps you decide to, to do what you're going to do because it will get other people's attention. Some of us just like to be seen, right? And so you do things that will attract people's attention, that will impress. It has nothing to do with what God has commanded you to do, but, but, but it will get attention. Um, if you spend over five minutes a day on Facebook, then you're doing this. So welcome to the club. Um, these things should not be. Your single-minded motivation should be your Father has called you to be holy as He is holy. Nothing you do is independent of Him. In each and every situation of every day, you should be pausing and asking, what has Jesus told me to do that I must do? What has Jesus told me to do? That's the thing I want to do. That's the thing I must do. That's the thing that I will do and enjoy, and have a good conscience. Jesus is very kind to us, isn't he? He's been very kind to us. He does not command us to do anything that is harmful to us. He never commands us to do that which is harmful to us. It may be painful what he calls us to do, but it is never harmful what he calls us to do, right? It may be the opposite of what your flesh would like to do, but it is ultimately good. So, do you have the same ambition as the Apostle Paul? Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. To Be pleasing to Him. Then, whatever He says to you, do it. (laughs) Whatever He says to you, do it. I mean, that implies you need to know what He's said, right? So, if you're not in the Word of God, there's no hope for you. If you're not attending worship where you hear the word of God preached and the word of God um, read, then you won't know what he requires. You should be searching the scriptures because he will answer your questions there. Six large stone water pots are there. They hold 20 or 30 gallons of water. They're collected there um, they're collected there for some reason for ceremonial washing. Though the Old Testament does not speak of, of this washing, the Old Testament does speak of washings, right? There, there are clear rules set out by God for his people about washing. But the Pharisees, right, the Pharisees have taken those laws of God and then surrounded them with uh, some insulation, Right, they've taken the, 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 the ordinary pipe of God's law and they've surrounded it with about four feet of insulation because they, they don't want to break the law and so they've made a bunch of laws around that law. And this is one of those situations. Right? This is one of those situations. We read of this practice in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, about these ceremonial you know, pots for washing. Mark 7 says, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. So Jesus' disciples are not, haven't washed and they're eating a piece of toast, right? And uh, that is, it says, unwashed. And then there's this parenthetical, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders... Notice that, less observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And then it's shortly after this description that we read of Jesus saying this to the Pharisees, you neglect the command of God, you hold to the traditions of men. So what these large water pots are are there for is not for some practice commanded by God. Um, And Jesus, the one who redeems us from dead works, takes those uncommanded works, those water pots, and drenches them with fine wine. I think that's glorious, right? Those those things that were going to be used for the traditions of men, Jesus comes and just fills them with the best of wine. and, and, you know, getting a little cosmic on you, we can understand Jesus taking these trappings of the dead works of the Pharisees, which only led to death, and then replacing them with his wine, right? His life, his joy, his own blood, right? In in this water turning to wine, we see Jesus replacing dead works with his life-giving works. And so from here we see how things played out. At Jesus' command, the servants fill the water pots with water to the brim. The miracle then occurs without a word. Nothing is said, nothing is touched. right? He doesn't apply his hands, he doesn't speak in some sort of incantation, right? The miracle occurs then. He, he can make matter out of nothing, or he can take pre-existing matter and change it into something else. And it is not that he made water appear to be wine, right? He made wine. He tells the servants to draw some of the liquid out and take it to the head waiter. The head waiter is then blown away by this vintage, the youngest vintage ever made in the history of winemaking, right? So age and good wine, that myth is thrown out the door, right? Um he goes to the bridegroom and asks him, why did you save the best for last? Right? You're supposed to serve the best first, and then when everybody has drunk freely and the taste buds have been slightly softened, you serve the lame stuff. Right? You serve the leftovers. You serve the, the stuff you, you wouldn't normally want to drink. So three sentences on alcohol. This used to get me in so much trouble in this church. It's crazy. It's just crazy. This church used to be a teetotal, in a teetotaling denomination, though, so understandable. But three sentences on alcohol. That Jesus supplied wine for a wedding feast destroys any teetotaling doctrine. It just destroys it, right? He made wine, and he gave it to people who had already drunk freely and gave them more wine, Okay? It is impossible because of this passage to prove that the drinking of wine is sinful. One of Jesus' commands is to not be a drunkard, but the mere drinking of alcoholic beverages is not sinful. That's it. That's all I'm going to say about it. Okay. Um, Then the passage ends abruptly. Bam. It's over. Uh, We do not read of Mary's joy, right, or them investigating this. Um, or or of Jesus saying anything to the bridegroom, right? Jesus doesn't speak with the bridegroom, doesn't uh, do any of that. We just receive information from John the Apostle. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the final words of the passage tell us about the effect of this miracle on those who were following Jesus and his disciples believed in him. I think those men who were following Jesus, those men just called to serve him and with him, had faith already. Right? They had faith. They followed him. I mean, remember Nathanael's confession. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I mean, no one says that without faith. But these miracles increased the confidence of these men who were strapped by their flesh Right, who had much to learn about Jesus. They had to make progress in their faith. And they are making progress in their faith by meditating on Jesus' works. In other words, they are not just in awe of the miracle. Right? It's, it's that they saw the miracle and they believed in him. Right? It's not that they're just like, whoa, do it again, I want to see more miracles. No, they're like, whoa, this man just just did this. This Jesus just just changed water into wine. They learn of the almighty power of Jesus Christ by these miracles. That's what they learn. So the goal of our lives too, dear brothers and sisters, is growth. Christian life is one of progress and growth and sanctification and increase. I mean, I don't mean to belittle our justification, which is once for all, um, but we are justified by faith, and then our faith begins to work. It begins to produce fruit. We begin to put to death sin. We we may be knocked down by sin, right? Sin knocks us down at points, but we get back up, and we put sin on the ropes by the power of the Spirit, and we get back up again and again. Take the sin, uh, take on that sin. But are you going after the things that God says will lead to your growth? That's my question. Are you, as, as Renton was saying in Sunday school, building those daily habits of faith? Those small habits of faith that will allow you to be faithful when the trials and tests come along from the Lord. Right? And and. The the things that you, you can give yourself to are are very simple. This is what, what Presbyterians and the Reformed have always taught. You have the word, you have the sacraments, and you have prayer. That's what you give yourselves to. Give yourselves to those things and you will grow in grace. You will be sanctified. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. These are the three, you know, those should be the three pillars of your life. Word, sacraments, and prayer. And so, I, I am begging you, as your shepherd, as the man God has appointed to be a watchman here, give yourselves to prayer. Give yourselves to his word. Right. The elders recently discussed the strengths and weaknesses of our church based upon Uh, Acts 2, right, that list in Acts 2 that says the early church was giving themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. Taking those as sort of the four pillars of the church, um, I think they can be boiled down to teaching, worship, fellowship, and prayer. And fellowship is a much more comprehensive thing than getting together and, and shooting the breeze. It's actually being committed to one another uh, in love. Teaching, worship, fellowship, and prayer. We ranked these four based upon what we've observed of the sheep in our flock. We are strong in teaching. We are much weaker in worship. Then comes fellowship. And then a huge drop-off when it comes to prayer. Huge drop-off. We are deficient in prayer. Right. Very few attend our prayer meetings, though we've made them as convenient for you as possible, online. Boop boop boop. You're in. I mean, you don't even have to be wearing pants. They're that easy. Yeah. Don't get any ideas. But very few attend our prayer meetings, though we've we've made them this convenient. I I've. I've begun praying that God's Spirit would come upon us as a church. And when it does, I know what it's going to look like. It's going to be a people committed to prayer. Because there's no, there's no, um, there's no cachet, there's no uh, kudos that you get from prayer. Right? Jesus even tells us when you pray, you know, go into a closet. Pray. Um, when, when the Spirit works in our church, there will be an earnest desire to pray. We will not be able to get enough of prayer. We'll be broken of our reliance upon our own strength, of our own arms, right? And we will finally acknowledge that God must act, and I need to go to the source to ask him because he's almighty God. He's the God of all power. Until, until the Spirit works, though, we will continue as we are neglecting prayer, neglecting to look to God for all our needs, right, we're going to continue acting like that foolish child who thinks they are entitled to every bit of their parents' inheritance, presuming upon it, right, that's what we do with God when we don't pray to him and ask him to do what he's willing to do, and so prayer, prayer, I I just, I, I don't think I don't think prayer is cool. And that's why we don't do it because the only things we do today as Americans as postmoderns are the things that are cool. We don't make we we unless we get immediate feedback not from God, not from pastors, but from just friends. Unless we Get immediate feedback from friends. We generally don't want to do anything. We want that immediate visibility. And prayer is just not that. Prayer is, is by every modern uh, criteria, prayer is the most passive, unproductive thing you could possibly do. right and that's why we don't pray because we that's what we think that's why i don't pray i'm just like well it's unproductive i probably should just go you know get some likes <laughs> write a provocative statement on facebook that makes people gnash their teeth right that's doing the work of the gospel but prayer you know prayer i can serve my church by my tweeting but have I prayed for my church, right? Have, we prayed for, have you prayed for your brothers and sisters here? Have you gone to the source of all power and presented your request to God? Do you have troubles in your life, right? Do you have things that you don't know how it's going to end and how it's going to go that maybe you should ask God to resolve and God to, to work out, God to fix entirely? Well, That's prayer. But you're not going to get much feedback for it um, until you see God answer your prayers. Then when, you, when you've been praying for something for three years and God finally pulls the trigger, then your faith will you'll you'll be riding on the 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 tops of the mountains, right? You will be you will be fed. Right? Prayer. A couple final words borrowed from Ryle's commentary. He argues that this passage teaches us that true religion was never meant to make men melancholy. I'm preaching to myself now, right? Um, I go from either, I, I'm, I am completely bipolar. Right? Either completely melancholy or completely... Stupid. Um, And he says here, true religion was never meant to make men melancholy. On the contrary, it was intended to increase real joy and happiness among men. There are certain amusements that we should not participate in, but we shouldn't walk about as if we are at a lifelong funeral. Right? Ryle says, though, Let Christians only remember that if they go where their master went to feasts, they must go in their master's spirit. Right? Not for drunkenness, not for the pleasures of the flesh, but joy, real joy, godliness, a witness, real joy. And then finally, Ryle says this, which I think is helpful for anyone who has a hard time believing without seeing. He draws a lesson from the fact that Jesus did not touch the water pots or the water, but willed from a distance that the water become wine. He says, "It is a comfortable though uh, it is a comfortable what did he say? It's a comfortable thought that the same almighty power of will which our Lord here displayed is still exercised on behalf of his believing people. They have no need of his bodily presence to maintain their cause. They have no reason to be cast down because they cannot see him with their eyes interceding for them or touch him with their hands that they may cling to him for safety. If he wills their salvation and the daily supply of all their spiritual need, they are as safe and well provided for as if they saw him standing by them. Christ's will is as mighty and effectual as Christ's deed. His will. He just willed this water to change. And he can will your salvation. He can will anything that you ask for. To um, the will of him who could say to the Father, I will they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am is the will that has all power in heaven and on earth and will prevail. His will will prevail. And that's an encouragement to me. We find that. We, that's one of the lessons we can take away from this passage. Amen.